So tonight's readings from uh, the book of Mark, chapter 1 and verses 14 to 20. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boats with the hired men and followed him. Amen. Thank you, Phil, and good evening, everybody. It's lovely to be with you. Should we pray uh, before we delve into this passage? Father God, we thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for your gospel, that it is good news to us today. And we pray that you would open our hearts to you. Maybe we've come here tonight and we're just feeling a bit shut down for whatever reason. Holy Spirit, just niggle us in those places where we need to just open to you right in this moment. And that, Holy Spirit, we wouldn't leave here the same, but you would change us, you would challenge us, you would move us on with you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was August 2001. That is a long time ago. Wave if you weren't born in August 2001. Yeah, okay. We got it. It's a long time ago, 21 years ago. And I had just finished uh, running, helping run a camp for about 90 14 to 18 year old young people with some other people, not single handedly. And uh, myself and the other overall leaders, we decided uh, that we would go off to the house of one of the other overall leaders to recover and sort of debrief uh, from this week away. John Tolbert, this, you know, handsome young man that I knew, we were going out at the time, uh, came along with us, uh, just as a hanger-on, as you do, and, uh, and we turned up at our friend's parents' house, and it just happened to be a castle, like a proper castle uh, with ramparts, that's part of it on the screen, and a moat uh, and a tower. And this tower is called Strickland's Tower. It was like a full-on Rapunzel tower. You know the story of Rapunzel, 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 let your hair down. It was like that. And uh, so we were absolutely shattered. We arrived at this castle, which is called Rose Castle. Uh, We went to bed, uh, because that tower is not the main part of the castle. There's also uh, residential parts of the castle. And then next morning, uh, together we decided to have a little walk around the grounds, the beautiful grounds of this castle. We got to Strickland's Tower and we all went up the castle together, including Lucy Harley Mason, who was three. I don't think you can remember it, can you? You do remember it, okay, because um, I ran the camp with her dad, and uh, so she was there in this moment, and we went up to the top of this tower, actually the top of the, the sort of round bit, the turret at the top, and we all, we stood at the top, and we took in all the views, it would be these amazing panoramic views across the countryside, and then we all came down the tower again. When we got to the bottom, this handsome young man called John Tolbert, who I happen to be going out with, said to me, Libby, go to the top of the tower again and we'll reenact Romeo and Juliet. 
and we were young and silly and in love. And so I went, okay then. Um, so I had to climb all the way to the top of the tower and it was like windy, windy, windy steps. Got to the top of the tower and it was the bit, not the round bit, it was the, the, the square bit, I'm sure ramparts, something like that. And I stood <laughs> over the top and I just went, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou? Thou? And John and Lucy and all our other friends were at the bottom, a long way down. And I just stood there, did my big declaration, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou? And then I just went, what comes next? And I looked over the tower, and there was John Talbot, like this, holding a diamond ring in his hand. But I, it was a long way down, I couldn't exactly see what was going on. <laughs> I, I did have my glasses on, but not my contact lenses. And, and I heard him shout up, will you marry me? And I leant over and I went, I'd been waiting for a while for this moment. I was like, are you being serious? And he was like, do I look serious? And I was like, yes, and came running down the tower. And four and a half months later, we were married because I don't mess around. Um, <laughs> So, why am I telling you this story? I'm having to look at my iPad to remind myself why on earth I'm telling you this story. I'm telling you this story because actually this was one of the most amazing moments of my life, and obviously Lucy's as well, because it's etched in her memory. But also, it was a, one of the most important questions that I'd ever been asked. I wonder what questions you've been asked. It might be something similar to that that has changed your life. A moment where you've been asked a question and it's had a profound impact on your life. It might be, would you apply for this job? Or it might be, why don't you come and live in Edinburgh? Or it might be, uh, do you wanna come to church or on this Alpha course? So think for a moment, what questions have you been asked that are really important What's a really important question that you have been asked? Okay, and then uh, chat to somebody near you. If you don't know them, you might want to say, hey, what's your name? That's a really important question in this moment. Uh, so why don't we, you just introduce yourself to somebody you're sat with. What important question have you been asked? If you can't think of anything, don't worry. Just have a nice chat. Go for it. Okay, uh, let's draw that to a close. Um, I'd love to hear everybody's question, but that will take the rest of our time together. So maybe uh, two or three people just shout out the question, whatever the question was that you just talked about. Do not be afraid. Why do you live the way you live? Great question. Profound. Anybody else? Okay, so you want to come to Edinburgh and study something that feels theology? Great. Okay, anybody else? Let's have one more. Do you want to start a band with me? Okay. You might not want me, but I will. Um, <laughs> 
So we've all got these important moments, these important questions uh, that we've been asked. And last week, uh, we were looking at the first few verses of Mark's gospel, the passage before the one we got to today. And we were reminded that all the way through uh, the gospel of Mark, there's this huge question hanging over, which is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus. And I guess for many of us, that question is one of the most important questions that we will ever have had to have answered or will ever have to answer. Who is Jesus? And actually, what impact does our answer to that question have on the rest of our lives? Who is Jesus? If he's just a man, you know, what does that mean? for me and the whole of humanity. If he's God, what does that mean in terms of my response to what he taught and what he said and the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, the claim that he actually rose from the dead? Who is Jesus and what difference does he make to my life are some of the big questions that we're actually going to find in our passage today from Mark's Gospel. So do have it open if you've still got it on your phone. It's Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. So we're going to look at this passage in a little bit more depth and find out, actually, what can this passage tell us about who is Jesus and our response to who Jesus is? So at the beginning of of this passage, we find that Jesus is in a place called Galilee, and it's a really busy and bustling place. You know, often when you see scenes of Jesus having these encounters described in the the Gospels, maybe on films or in picture books, it all just looks really idyllic and quiet and green, like Jesus is teaching on a grassy knoll uh, to all these lovely, uh, quiet people. But Galilee, by all accounts, was a really busy, bustling place. It was like a sort of crossroads of nations and religions and people groups and political ideas, a place where all these things come together, a little bit like the Royal Mile in the Fringe. And so it's into this context that Jesus begins to share his message, and he announces the good news of God. Verse 15, Jesus says, The time has come, he says. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. Verse 15, the time has come. The time has come. Jesus is basically saying God's time is now. Now, I love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who doesn't love The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? And I think C.S. Lewis, in a particular moment in the story, tries to capture some of this moment from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, Because you might remember there's a moment uh, where the children are with the beavers in their little house, and they begin to see signs of spring coming. And one of the beavers declares this, Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And then C.S. Lewis goes on to narrate. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you, than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt 
quite different. As Jesus declared, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. I wonder whether a similar thing happened. I wonder whether there was a recognition. God is on the move. But nobody knew very much about Jesus at this point. But there was something about his presence stood there. There was something about the words that they'd heard him already saying around the place that sent sort of ripples of excitement and expectation through this mishmash of people gathered listening to him. God is on the move. Something's going on in this moment. The time is now, Jesus said. God has been, people knew that God had been and done things before, and they knew about all these prophecies of the Messiah. The time has come. Maybe this moment is a moment of eternal significance, and maybe this person speaking these words is a person of eternal significance as well. And then Jesus goes on. He says more, verse 15, the kingdom of God is near. Now, the kingdom of God is one of those like religious phrases uh, that we can often get a bit confused about, can't we? I remember, I don't think I really got my head around what on earth the kingdom of God was until I was actually teaching it to young people on that camp when I was about 22, 23 years old. Because when we think about a kingdom, we often think about a place, a geographical location. You know, in Edinburgh, we might think of the kingdom of Fife. It's such a glorious sort of uh, thing to declare, isn't it? The kingdom of Fife. But when you look at the Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke, it was written in Greek, but they spoke Aramaic. When you look at, at the word for the kingdom that Jesus uses here. What it actually is referring to is like a kingly rule or a kingly reign, uh, but it's wrapped up in a person. So what Jesus is saying is God is sovereign, God is overall now, and I am the one who will show you and demonstrate what his sovereignty in the world now will look like. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near in me, not me, Jesus. He's basically saying, now is the time and I am the one. And then he declares this, repent and believe in the good news. Now is the time, I am the one. And you're not gonna have the chance to just ignore me. There's not going to be an option of just sitting on the fence and letting me pass by. A response is required to me. And the response I'm calling you to is to believe in the good news and to repent. So just in this uh, verse, it's actually chapter 15, it said 14 on the uh, verse uh, 15, not 14 as it said on the screen. Just in these few verses, Jesus presents to those people who were listening, and to us today, the way of discipleship, what it actually means to be a Christian. I love Mark, because he just like condenses everything into the real essentials. And what he's saying is basically, Jesus sees people. Jesus sees you. And then Jesus calls. He basically poses a question. Are you going to come and follow me? And to which they, the disciples, the people who are being called, And we today get a chance to respond. 
So either choose to follow him or not. And then if we choose to follow, we need to repent and believe. So it's really simple. This is what this whole passage is about. Jesus sees, Jesus calls, we respond. So let's just unpack it a little bit. Firstly, Jesus sees. Did you notice that Jesus is the one who sees the people out fishing? These guys, they'd probably heard of him. They might have seen him around the place. His, his fame was really spreading at this time. But it's actually Jesus, Mark says, who sees them, who notices them. Verse 16, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. He saw them. And then verse 19, when he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat. Jesus sees them. Individual. Individuals, people with names, with identities, with families. We get to find out who they're related to. With jobs, they were fishermen. They have places in community. They're people with histories, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and Jesus sees. He sees Simon, he's got a name, and his brother Andrew. He sees James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And as we go through Mark's gospel over the next few weeks, uh, you're going to see that Jesus does this time and time again. He sees people. He notices the people with the big characters who are right in front of Jesus asking the awkward questions. But he also sees the people who are a bit broken and they're hiding in the shadows, like that woman who, who was, had been bleeding for 12 years and she's ashamed, but she's desperately in need of healing. He sees her. He sees Zacchaeus hiding in that tree because Jesus meets people where they are. And he speaks a language that they're going to understand. Do you notice he speaks the language of fishermen here? You know, and when he's talking to tax collectors, he speaks the language of tax collectors. And when he's with somebody who's outcast from society, he speaks the language of compassion. Have you ever considered that Jesus sees you? He notices you. He sees who you are, you know, not just what you do, the labels that we have in our lives, as Dave was mentioning earlier. He doesn't see what you've achieved or not achieved in the world's eyes. He doesn't see those things that so many people define us by. You know, that's not as important to him. He sees the questions that we have. He sees the struggles that all of us face on a daily basis in our lives. He sees you and he's like, you know, you're okay, you are. And he looks at you with the purest, most real and genuine love. And he doesn't just see you and then just walk off and leave you but he calls you. Jesus sees, and then Jesus calls. 
just the fact that Jesus like randomly goes up to these fishermen and goes, you know, come and follow me, tells me a huge amount about who Jesus is. Now, think about it for a moment. If uh, one of us did just that, you know, goes up to somebody in the St. James's Quarter tomorrow, tomorrow morning, about 11 o'clock when you're going in for your coffee, and uh, you go, hey, come, leave your shopping bags, leave your mates, and follow me, what would be the response to you? I think people would either just like laugh and think maybe they're in sort of some sort of like fringe show they didn't know existed, or um, they would run a mile and think you are some sort of delusional psychopath. But Jesus, there's something about Jesus. He actually has the authority to do this. It's divine authority to call people to come and follow me, to be my disciples, to give up your life and follow me. People don't do that because people are not God. They're not God incarnate, but Jesus has divine authority. Again, back to that quote from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, And C.S. Lewis writes this. He writes, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he's already landed. And then did you notice, none of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Jesus calls the fishermen, follow me. And they do it because there's something about him which makes everything quite different. Jesus sees you. He's found you. That's why you're here tonight. And Jesus chooses to call you. Come, follow me. We're going to pause for 30 seconds. I want you to really think about that for a moment. Close your eyes if it helps you to concentrate. Do you know that Jesus sees you? What does that look like? Maybe imagine Jesus looking at you. What does his face look like as he sees you? What does it feel like to be seen and, and called by Jesus? Let's just think about that and ponder it just for 30 seconds. Okay, so Jesus sees and Jesus calls us, and that call demands a response, a choice. Are we going to follow or are we not going to follow? Some of you have already heard a call and have responded and are following Jesus. For some of us, we have been seen by Jesus, we've heard the call, we've responded to that call to follow Jesus, but actually, if we're honest, things are in a bit of a mess at the moment. We feel really distant from God. Things feel a bit stale. Maybe it feels like we've taken our eyes off Jesus. And for others of us, we're hearing this for the first time, that Jesus sees us and calls us and loves us and and calls us to follow him. Jesus says to each of us, 
come and follow me. And then we get the option of responding. And the option also leads to us having to repent and believe in the good news. Repenting. You know, repenting is one of those, again, quite religious words you hear, don't you? You don't hear it a lot around the place. Uh, But it's a very real and practical thing. It's got a real and practical meaning. Uh, Dave was saying uh, last week a really helpful definition of repenting that he'd heard, which was about realigning ourselves to God. It's about sort of turning around and a change of heart and realigning ourselves to the ways of God rather than our ways or the ways of the world around us. Um, just because I do a bit of paddleboarding and it's been the summer, so I've been doing it a lot. I've, I, all my illustrations are about paddleboarding at the moment. But I was thinking about how, you know, when you're on a paddleboard, you might not know because you've never been on a paddleboard, but stay with me. Uh, you're on a paddleboard and, and you get on and you either kneel down if it's a bit choppy or you stand up and, uh, and you sort of set yourself where you're going to go. You sort of go, right, I'm going to head to that little cove or that cliff on the side there. And you sort of set off going along like this. But actually, it's not as straightforward as that because there are tides, there are currents, there's winds that come from either side. And suddenly, you find yourself going a little bit like this along the route to your, to your location. And so you almost have to realign the paddleboard by sort of going a little bit more on that side, get yourself straight again or whatever, because you get blown off course. And that's why we need to repent, because we get blown off course in terms of our relationship with God. When someone asked Jesus, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? He said this, the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but I do not love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and my neighbor as myself all of the time. Let me tell you, and those people that work with me who are down here know what that looks like. I know that about myself. And that is sin, when we do not love God with everything that we are and love the people around us as we are. And we need to hold our hands up and say, yes, I am a sinner. I do not love God and other people in the way that he has called me to. I've been blown off course, if you like. And so I need to realign myself to God and what he's called me to do and to be. And so I need to make that choice to repent, to realign my heart to him. So repent. Jesus calls us to respond by repenting and then believing in the good news. Believe in Jesus, that he is the good news that we all need to hear. You know, 2,000 years ago, uh, these people in Galilee, they were searching for something. They were searching for meaning. They were searching for the Messiah, the King, the one who would come and answer all their problems. And you know what? It's not that different today, is it? People are still searching. And if you're searching here tonight, it might feel like there's a void in your life, you know, a deep longing that all the other stuff that you've tried hasn't seemed to fill. You know, you've tried all sorts of stuff that the world has offered to you, and it always looks shiny, 
And it always says, this is the answer and this is the thing. And this will make you happy and content. But actually you found it's not enough. And Jesus is saying, I am here. I am all you need. Believe in the good news because I am the good news, Jesus says. Come and follow me. I love the fact that it says, believe in the good news. I only noticed that this week when I was looking at it. Believe in the good news. And this is actually the only time in the New Testament that that phrase comes in, believe in. And there's real power in that statement. Because think about it for a moment. When do you say uh, something like, you know, I really believe in you? We use that phrase, I believe in you, or we hear other people saying that, when somebody is really convinced by somebody else and really committed to that person, we might hear them say, I believe in you. I believe, you know, you can, I believe that you can start this new business. I believe in you. There's something really convinced and committed there as well. And so Jesus calls us to repent and then believe in him. There's no option left open to us to be like half-hearted and say, yeah, you know, I sort of follow Jesus. We're to be convinced and committed to Jesus to believe in the good news. You can't believe in Jesus without making a commitment to him. When I was thinking about this, it reminded me of uh, a little boy who was just constantly rolling out of bed. And his uncle came to stay and was babysitting for him. And, uh, and every so often, he'd hear this like thump uh, as this little boy rolled out of bed and landed on the floor. And, you know, he'd run up and help the little boy get back into bed again. And the next morning, uh, the little boy's uncle said to him, uh, you know, why is it do you think that you're falling out of bed so easily? And he said this, well, I suppose I stay too close to the place where I get in. It's simple, isn't it? I suppose I just stay too close to the place where I get in. If we have said yes to that call to follow Jesus, if we believe in him, if we have decided to respond to his call on our lives to follow him, we need then to move on from the place where we got in, not stay too close to the edge because you might fall out. And that's what discipleship is. It's moving on in your relationship with Jesus from the place where you started. And the interesting thing about the, this account uh, of Jesus calling his first disciples is that he calls them, you know, come and follow me. Not just come and stand by me for these like five minutes, we're just going to hang out together, but like come and follow me. There's no other detail in this passage apart from the fact that Jesus says, come and follow me. And then Mark says, and at once they left their nets and they followed him. They didn't um and ah and say, you know, perhaps in 20 years' time, Jesus, I might leave my nets and follow you. Uh, or, you know, when I've done my own Simon Peter-style life, then I'll come and follow you. Or, you know, when my life is a little bit more comfortable and I've earned, you know, 20,000, whatever the denarii, uh, whatever it was in those days. Jesus called them and they followed. They moved away from the place where they got in and they followed Jesus. And this, to many of us, 
is the hard bit because, you know, that's the bit, doesn't it, that tests us, that, that, that invites us to actually make that commitment to follow Jesus. It involves change. Yet it is the place where we grow, where we really begin to discover the joy of what it means to follow him, to be Jesus' friend. Just as we finish, I was listening to a, a testimony the other week of someone who had been on the Alpha course. It's a, it's a course, uh, lots of people here have been on it to help you explore Christianity. And they were at the point in the course where they were describing how they got to the point where they had to make a decision. Were they going to follow Jesus or not? And they said this, I had to decide whether or not to take that leap of faith. I hadn't said a prayer for about 10 years, and I sensed this big side of me saying, no, don't do it. Your life is just fine. You don't want your life to change. And then I was suddenly struck by this sense of, you never commit to anything. You always keep your options open, which was true. And I had this quite powerful sense that my life was just one long series of get-out clauses. It was piecemeal, pick a mix, very shallow. And so I thought, right, I'm going to say a prayer. So I said to God, right, here I am. I believe in your son, and I'm asking for forgiveness. I said, that's it. And if you're there, here I am. And I gave my life to Jesus. That was ages ago. And now my life has completely changed in many ways, I'm di a different person, but I like to think my essence is still there. Jesus is now my Lord and my best friend. And I'm excited as well. God always does things which are exciting and challenging. It's a big adventure following him. And this is what Jesus invites each of us to in this room. He says, here I am. I see you. I am the good news. Come, I'm calling you. Come and join me on the road. Follow me. And I guess the big question, maybe the biggest question that we ever face in our lives is what is our response? How are we going to respond to who Jesus is? I'm just going to hand over to Dave.